welcome to another edition of Surgeons' Lives. I'm your host, John Monson. Today, it's my distinct personal pleasure to welcome Dr. George Fielding. I've known George for some decades now, since we first met in Australia in the 1990s. He is, as everyone will know, one of the legends of bariatric surgery, having refined his uh, skill and his art in uh, Brisbane, um, where he became very well known uh, internationally for pioneering uh, laparoscopic lap bands. Um, he then moved to New York, where he has been for some decades now, and has developed uh, an extraordinary range of interests. When I first knew George, he uh, was known for somebody who was incredibly knowledgeable about uh, wine, particularly French wine. Um, uh, but over the years, he's uh, got an extraordinary range of interests in hunting, shooting, fishing, as they say. Um, he's a blues musician, guitarist, pianist. Um, he loves growing vegetables and uh, working in the garden. Um, there seems to be no limit to what this um, man uh, uh, has done in his life and continues to do following his recent retirement. I'm sure his story uh, will be uh, very interesting. So um, without uh, further ado, um, uh, join me for another edition uh, of Surgeon's Lives. Yeah. So um, uh, Brisbane, uh, uh, Brisbane, 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 England or yeah. Scotland with David Carter. A remarkable man, um, the yeah. Saint, the Saint Mungo Professor of Surgery at the time before yeah. he went to Edinburgh. I have, I can say freely, he's the only surgeon I've ever been scared of. <laughs> he was such an intimidating little. But I, I, when he uh, retired, I, I flew back from Australia to be at his retirement dinner. He's an extraordinary man, and he is um, an extraordinary man. He, uh, he was very yeah. kind to me. Um, yeah. when I was starting out academically in the UK, yeah. he had this remarkable ability of being able to say exactly the right words at the right moment. Um, yeah. um, and he, he had a great committee skill, which was to let everybody argue it out. Yes. And uh, he would never say a word, and then he would sum it all up. Uh, yeah. It was blatantly obvious, and everybody think he was a genius yeah. at that point. You know. So, so when I was there with him, it was when he was the editor of the British Journal. Yeah. And uh, so he taught me a lot about. I wrote a few papers with him. He taught me a lot about writing. And my co-fellow there was James Garden, and uh, we became good mates as well. Yeah. And uh, his first, uh, Dave Carter's first job. Uh, as a registrar post-fellowship, strangely and bizarrely, it was in Hull, um, a place he'd never heard of in his life and was just sent down there. And he always yeah. told me the story of being on an, a, the first Saturday he arrived and going to see some enormously obese woman. And as David would say, something had clearly gone bang in her abdomen. And... So he, uh, he called up the boss who said, um, will you better operate on her then? To which David said, well, I, 
I've, I've never done anything like that at all. I mean, I've just done my fellowship, to which his boss said, well, I have no intention of coming in, so you better get on with it. <laughs> so you know. I heard a great story like that. One of my boys that I trained in Brisbane went to the south of England. I won't say where, but um, and there was a patient came in with a ruptured aneurysm, and uh, he'd seen them, but he'd never done one himself. Yeah, and he rang the boss, who was very senior and very famous, and he said, "Young man." Um, this is a teaching hospital. You're about to have a learning experience. <laughs> and when he did it, and it, and it, luckily everyone did well, and then he did a lot more, but it was so typical. I just read, I'm sure you've probably read it, this amazing book called This Is Gonna Hurt about being a, a resident, you know, and in a teaching hospital. Yeah. Well, these chaps would just never come in. I just read it literally this weekend and uh, it brought back a lot of memories. No, there was um, uh, there was quite a lot of that. I mean, uh, you yeah. know, it's, uh, you know, I worked with guys in the UK who were good and very supportive, but, you know, I, I know that I did my first gastrectomy independently. I'd seen plenty of them at two in the morning with a nurse holding the book, just in case. Um, you exactly. Know, you just had to work. It's it's not the right way of doing it. Um, no. Nope. But the current way, um, I think that pendulum has swung the wrong direction because we are... Oh, I, I had a similar experience when I was in my residency in Australia and we had to do a year in the country. Yeah. And when we were on call, we were on call for general surgery, orthopedics, and neurosurgery. And a guy came in with a compound tib and fib, and I rang the guy, and he said, well, there's a book in your sister's office. Yeah. Just go to the correct page. <laughs> we had um, a medical school reunion a few years ago, and uh, – I think it was held in Ireland or something. I'm not sure where it was, but, you know, there's people come from around. I think it was 35 years or something. And uh, we always try to have a few talks given because it allows people to claim on tax, you know. So it's the academic session. And my colleague um, and close friend Vivian McAllister, who is a, a liver transplant surgeon in Canada, uh, just retired now, um, he was setting up his lock, his um, his uh, laptop, and so you could see the desktop. And he was about to talk about some liver transplant nonsense. And um, I, I said to him, "Just a minute, Vivian." I said, "I need to hear the talk there that's called do-it-yourself neurosurgery." <laughs> and um, he literally had this talk um, because he'd spent uh, time with the Australian Armed Forces in Kandahar and he and a neuro he and an orthopedic surgeon were the only two guys and he said we had to teach ourselves neurosurgery oh my god um, <laughs> so um so when i first met you um you and les and john lumley um, and the young child uh, if you remember the enfant terrible uh, who was Andrew Stevenson um, and Nick O'Rourke. Um, yeah. 
where at that point, um, you know, you you were a young and uh, go-getter at that time, and yeah, you, yeah. you and Les and. And you weren't going anywhere other than to vineyards, um, etc., because that yeah. was your big passion. Yeah. Um, did you see yourself? Was that was that you're going to be your future? Yeah, I was uh, introduced to to wine very young by my father, who was obviously all Aussie stuff. Mm-hmm. Then I was lucky enough to fall in with some older guys who had set up a wine group and they invited me. And uh, they had no interest at all in drinking Australian wine. And so basically it was Bordeaux and Burgundy. And and I was blessed because I just got to taste all these extraordinary, extraordinary wines. And, and then I got to know a couple of big guys in the Australian wine industry, James Halliday in particular, um, who's a great wine writer. And they had set up this group of four or five guys to buy a house in Burgundy in Montley, and they invited me to join them. And this was probably in the mid-'90s, like 95, something like that, 96. Right. And so I did. Um, and then every opportunity we had, we went from Australia there to meet the guys locally and get to know the culture um, and, you know, taste all these things. And it was just a lovely little village house. It's, you know, sort of four bedrooms, but it's very humble, but it's gorgeous. It's right in the vineyards. And I just fell in love with it, like lock, stock, and barrel. And um, so I, you know, I've maintained that. Um, my first great love was Burgundy. Uh, but I have to say in the last five years or so, I've really fallen in love uh, with Barola and, uh, in Piedmont. And Christine and I have been there two or three times over the years and sort of same thing, meet the locals, um, get a deeper understanding. And it, it's a real, you know, it's a passion, but it's also just a joy, you know, and it's about as far removed from operating, you know, as you can be. And, yeah. you know, like you and a lot of other guys who are, you know, that we all know, we work really hard you know, when we're working. And, uh, you know, I'm just the sort of guy that wants to do something that sort of takes me away from that a bit. And I think the the skill set of these guys that make these mind-boggling lines, the passion they have for uh, things they have to undergo and deal with the weather, um, you know, it doesn't always work out. There's some sort of similarity, I think, and this is going to sound a bit silly, but, you know, between winemaking and surgery. You know, mm-hmm. you, it doesn't always work out. It's not always easy. But when it's good, it's unbelievable. And that's sort of where I got this sort of the love of wine from. And now I, uh, you know, we... It started during the pandemic when we couldn't go out anywhere. 
um, we started these monthly dinners at our house just with our team and you know Christine and Marina and uh, Megan Jenkins, Loic Tatwani and um, Paresh Shah, and we just all would meet once a month with the theme, and then basically they would prepare a lot of the dinners and I'd provide a lot of the wines according to the theme. And it was a really bonding thing during, you know, a truly terrible time here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I I remember, I mean, I've never forgotten the the Magnum dinner that you very uh, kindly hosted for me when I was in Brisbane the first time. I've never forgotten it. it was an extraordinary evening. And the thing that I think that I've never forgotten was that it was it was so accessible. I mean, I, I like wine, I drink wine, and I, I enjoy it, but I'm not at the level of knowledge. And you know, it's a wine wine can be scary for people because it's, you know, classically traditionally quite pretentious and you know and i'm yep, yep. you know i'm getting tobacco and rotten socks and stuff like that you know etc and, yep. and you made it um you made it very accessible and oh thank you um, yeah I, I mean it's partly the aussie in me i think sure, as much as yeah. anything else yeah. you know i i don't you know i'm like you i'm sure i just don't have much tolerance for bullshit you know yeah. and um uh, I think I just want to sort of sort of spread the joy and maybe yeah. get someone to take up the same sort of interests. And and certainly it's happened here with during the pandemic with these dinners and everyone that's been involved has really you know become more interested in the intricacies of it. Um, so. so you said that. Uh you know, one of the biggest uh, changes in your life was having the lap band. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you became known um, as an inserter of lap bands indeed. as well as yeah. a recipient of lap bands. And, indeed, I, I would, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the lap band era um was really what launched you onto the international stage i think is that fair for sure yeah Yeah. indeed um and so you know was that we which came first chicken or egg yeah so um paul o'brien who really was Mm -hmm. one of the guys that drove this around the world yeah he had he had been doing open bypasses in melbourne um, I'd only done a few of them. I thought they were pretty horrible operations for people. You know, these gigantic holes you can put your head in and and terrible complications, often to do with pulmonary embolus and stuff like that. And um, so Paul was invited by Vern Vincent, who had actually created this thing, and he went to Brussels um, and and then came back to Australia and started doing them. And he rang me up one day and he said, um, God bless him, he said, you should get into this. You know, you can do anything laparoscopically and you're really fat and and you might have a good understanding of how this is going to go for people. (laughs) Oh, thanks, mate. (laughs) So I went down to Melbourne and I watched him 
And I thought, this is about as hard as falling off a log. And um, compared to what I was doing, because by then, you know, I was doing all the colon stuff. I was doing distal panks. I was toying with doing livers and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and, and I couldn't believe how technically straightforward it was. But what I bought into from, from Paul and from Vern was the importance of looking after them afterwards. And, you know, the, not just adjusting them, but being available to them, all that sort of thing. So I came back and I started doing them. And because God knows there were plenty of people uh, in Queensland and northern New South Wales who needed the help. And, um, and I think it sort of coincided with this. This is when the world truly started becoming obese on a giant scale, that sort of mid-90s. And um, so I started doing them. And then because of the distances in Australia, I would fly up to Cairns and to Townsville and do clinics up there, both to meet new patients and then to do adjustments up there to save them all having to come to Brisbane. Because if you don't adjust these things, they don't work. And then, so I was doing them. I'd probably done a couple of thousand by the time '99 came around, and uh, and I was going along. I I was very big, um, and then I had all sorts of heart troubles. I actually went into VTAC, went into the Wesley. And the guy looking after me, I'd been to start, I started going to school with him when I was five. And he looks at me, Mark Craig, he's passed away now, sadly. But he said, you know, don't you friggin' die. I said, well, don't let me, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Please, if you don't mind, yeah. And so, you know, then I went to see the cardiologist and he said, mate, if you don't lose weight, a lot of weight, you're going to die. And, um, so I rang Paul. I said, when can I come down and get a band? And he said, oh, liquid diet for two weeks and I'll do it for you. Yeah. So I did. So, and that was in 99. So I went down to Melbourne with Jen, my first wife. I was scared out of my wits, you know, and, um, you know, about the surgery, but also about what it was going to be like afterwards. Yeah. But it went great. And uh, it's gone great. Um, I'm still down about 120 pounds. Um, I've had it since 99, so it's like 23, 24 years. Um, and it, I have no doubt uh, I wouldn't be here if I hadn't done it. I was just. Do you, um, uh, you, do you still put bands in? Um, yeah, nothing like before. Yeah, I mean, the world but changed. I would say uh, every week at NYU there are two or three bands. Right. But while the world had shifted to sleeves and yeah. uh, you were still putting some bands in. Oh, yeah, and and uh, and we still do. Um, the sleeve has obviously, you know, dominated everything in the last five years. Yeah. And it's a great operation. The only issue with it is about a third of them put it all back on. That's yeah. That's the issue with it. Um, yeah. You know, and there's something really heartwarming about seeing someone you put a band in 20 years ago 
and they still got it and they still like it. And they're the people who send their friends and family. Yeah. yeah. The people that have done well. And we have literally thousands of them yeah, uh, yeah, that we yeah. still see in follow up. Um, now, uh, now that I've stopped operating myself, what all I do is do follow ups. Yeah. And yeah. so my follow up day might be, you know, 40 band adjustments. Yeah. Because yeah. they're still coming, because they, they still work. <laughs> but it's a lot of work. And I think. One of the issues with the band was that it just is a lot of work to make it work. Yeah, yeah. Whereas with just, the sleeve, it's not just a one-shot deal. Yeah. And that's to a lesser extent the bypass. It's a you know it's a lovely little operation to do, and then it does its thing. Yeah, and, yeah. and you're not having to see them every month and do the band adjustments and all that. So, but you know the other. As I mentioned to you, I've had some health issues myself in the last couple of years. And, you know, uh, even in simple terms, I had COVID three times, you know. And what we know about COVID is if you're morbidly obese, yeah, it's not great. Yeah. And, you know, and then I got myeloma and then I had a PE probably as a side effect of that. And then I had an MI and got stents. And I think if I had been morbidly obese, I would just wouldn't have survived all this. Wow. And I think that's one of the driving forces that uh, I think women come uh, for bariatric surgery because they just hate being obese. Yeah. Men tend to come because something happens and they get scared. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. They're very different. So – when you were when you were riding the crest of that wave, um, yeah. you know, I, I remember you and Paul would travel far and wide doing these things, yeah, and leaving behind a large number of begrudgers um, sitting at home, going, "Those bastards are off making untold amounts of money putting pounds in for people." You know, the tall poppy syndrome was yeah, well, it was well, very real. Very real, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then, boom! You did something that you weren't meant to do in uh, in the world. You know, you you're, you're sitting there having a great life, raking the money in, and boom! You up and leave and go to New York. Yep. That was not that was not in Plan A. It wasn't in the plan, and it wasn't easy. Mm, I can imagine. Um, but you know, and I'm still. You know, it, it's it's a very hard thing to do, both from a family point of view and the country point of view. And uh, one good thing that came out of it is I'm still very close with my children and with my first wife. Um, she's been over to visit, bringing her boyfriend with her, and you know, we we all get on. But it was it was a huge jolt. Um, but, you know, I just knew that if I didn't, I was going to go crazy. And um, and it's, a lot of the way my life has evolved is because uh, Christine and I really enjoy doing the same things together. Yeah. 
apart from working, I mean, she's the chief of the division at NYU. Um, you know, she's a brilliant surgeon and she's busy as can be. Um, but that, apart from that, I think the reason we have such a good life together is that we, all of the things that we love, we do together. And I think that's been a huge change. I mean, she's, she loves drinking wine, but she's not, you know, crazy about it. Um, but what we love doing together is like gardening, growing our own food, um, uh, fly fishing, uh, duck hunting, pheasant hunting, uh, all those things, and, we, and, and traveling. And, and, you know, we just, you know, I think it's a great respite from the work. Because um, when I was in my prime, you know, two or three years, years ago when I still really was before I got sick. I mean, the, the volume of work we were doing at NYU is insane, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and we both realised that uh, if we didn't, you know, do these things together, get away, just get out of the place, we're going to go nuts. And, you know, and I think one of the issues with a lot of surgeons is they don't have this yeah. yeah. And, you know, and I think, uh, I think some of them tend to stay on too long because they've got nothing else to do. Yeah. And, uh, no, I think that I'm sure that I'm sure that is true. The, uh, you know, I've spoken in this podcast to numerous people and, and now, of course, I am in general speaking to the people who are happy in life. Yeah, um, you know, you tend not to speak to the people who are sitting in the basement crying into their beer. Um, yeah. Yeah. But the reality is that, you know, and it really doesn't matter whether it's driving a, a jag across America or sailing your boat around the world or drinking yeah. wine and shooting at birds. It's it's just something that isn't work. Yeah, and um, and it's enriching, you know, and. And the other thing, you know, with the hobbies that we have with the fishing and the shooting and stuff is we just meet a lot of really interesting yeah. non-medical people. Yeah. You know, yeah. and like the fishing guides, the hunting guides, the other guys that are there doing it, um, they're about as far removed from a surgeon's tea room as you could possibly be. Yeah, I can imagine. So you... um. Uh, when you were in Brisbane, were you uh, a hunting, fishing, shooting type or not? No. So I used to serve, I was taught to fish by my uh, father and grandfathers, but it right. was it was river and, and, and sea fishing. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. saltwater casting. Yeah. But I had done it my whole life. Um, I, I'd never shot. Um, and the, the shooting came... You know, we would go to all these places to fish, and when we settled on two or three that became where we go, these guys would say, "Mate, you you really should come back in autumn and winter and go shooting." And so that's what, and we eventually did, and then sort of fell in love with it. Really, but uh, but I was always uh, interested. I loved fishing. When I was in, I used to take my kids fishing. You know, yeah. we loved it. We would go for a week to Fraser Island and 
you know, just sort of fish. And, um, and um, you, uh, in New York, you live outside of the city or in Manhattan? So our, where I'm sitting now is in, in the middle of Manhattan on the Upper East Side. Right. Um, about 10 or 11 years ago, we bought a house up in the Hudson Valley. Right. which is about an hour and a half north of here yeah. near a town called Norbrook. Yeah. And it's just an old colonial sort of house that's been renovated and then we renovated a bit more. It's on six acres. So we've got, you know, and Chris is just a really great gardener and I love helping her, but she's the, the force behind it. And we started out just like with flowers and bushes and nice stuff and then she worked out and learnt how to grow food. And so we basically in the spring and summer and early fall, we basically eat what she grows. Right. And then the other thing she got into was chickens. So we have 26 chickens. So we have the eggs and she just took a whole pile of eggs into the office today to give to the girls. And so it's a it's a lovely sort of communing with nature thing. Yeah. And then uh, you you bought the you bought a place in Montana. Right. Yeah. And so we started going out there 15, 16 years ago and uh, fell in love with it. It's it's truly a happy place. And um, it's uh, and we've met some lovely people out there. So we go out there in the various seasons. So in the spring and the summer, it's for fly fishing. Yeah. And then in the fall, it's fly fishing and beginning of, of ducks. And then in the middle of winter, like in January, we go for the end of the duck season. And it's basically all done floating down the Bighorn River and in a, in a basically a rowing boat. Yeah, yeah, and we fish out of the boat, or we get out into the river and stand there and wade and fish. And then when we're duck hunting, we go down and with the, with our guide Chris Stinson, and we just basically set up in the bushes on the bank. And the guide and Christine call the ducks in and the geese, and um, it's good. And. Uh- the main characteristic of the animals that you're attempting to slaughter are that they're not big enough to attack you. Yeah, that's a very good point. And the other main <laughs> characteristic of them is they're very yummy. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you, I, I've never seen a picture of you out um, stalking a deer or a moose or anything. No, like we that. don't. We don't. Yeah. No. Yeah. And so when we get all these ducks, um, I make sausage. I make. Sure. Um, uh, chili, uh, we eat the duck breasts. We used yeah. to shoot get upland hunting for pheasant, but we just love the ducks more. And yeah. um, you know, I, you know, we're respectful of them. I'm not going to just sort of throw them in a corner. For sure, yeah. You know, and and there's not much better than a roast, you know, duck breast. So. Yeah, yeah. So then out of the blue, as life was, I mean, you'd had a few brushes with mortality with your heart and Brisbane yeah, yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. And then out of the blue, somebody says, um, by the way, you have a disease that when you were a kid like me, you knew was a fatal disease. Yeah. Um, that, that was not in the plan either. 
It was not in the plan, mate. And uh, it was, um, I just was getting so tired. I could honestly couldn't walk up a flight of stairs. Mm. And so, you know, it's like physician heal thyself. And typically we don't. Yeah. And um, so I went to my friendly cardiology guy here, Bill Cole, and he did blood work and my hemoglobin was nine. And uh, he said, right, you're off to see the hematological oncologist, hematologist, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you can avoid it at all costs, never have a bone marrow biopsy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's so smart a bit. Yeah. Um, anyway, so she did it, and we we were packed to go to Montana the next day. And the phone rings, and I'm sitting just across from where I'm sitting now, and there's this lovely lady uh, on college, and she said, "I've got some news for you, George. You've got multiple myeloma." <laughs> and I went, "Oh shit." And she said, yeah. She said, what are your plans? And I said, well, we're just about to go to Montana for a week. She said, good. When you come back, I'm going to send you to see a friend of mine and you're going to need to have chemotherapy and a bone marrow transplant. And so I went, so Chris walks in the door and says, what's wrong with you? So I told her, and it was was a pretty tough day or two, I have to say. And uh, was it helpful going to Montana for the week? Or did, yeah, you just, it was. did you just think I should be back starting this now? Yeah, no, I just wanted to get away. And the, yeah. the w- other aspect of it, it was in the absolute middle of the pandemic. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I, and I just didn't know what was going to happen, you know, and uh, I just, you know, I just wanted to go there one more time, basically. And we shed quite a few tears on the river with our guide. And Marina and Megan, our uh, partners, came with us. And I, that's where I told them what was going on. And it was just like the, the old Kubler-Ross thing, you know. I, I just had to sort of go through it. And um, and it was, you know, lovely having them there because they could sort of give Chris a bit of comfort as well. And... And then I came back and I went and met this chap, Gareth Morgan, who's Welsh, and he's like the world king of multiple myeloma. And I started it. And um, and I was all, you know, I did, I did all the, the drug treatments. And then I went in and got sort of measured up to have a bone marrow transplant. And then I got COVID. And so I couldn't have the transplant. And I'm like, come on, man, you know. And so then we had to back off for a while. And then Gareth said, you know, I think let's just hold off on the transplant because you've had a good response, you know. And he said, you're so immune suppressed with the treatment plus the COVID. He said, so I dodged a bullet really with that and I didn't have to have it. That's good. Um, and so just, just recently I've stopped the, the chemo sort of stuff, but I've got no IgG and no IgA at all. So I'm getting IgG infusions. Yeah. 
Well, you, you know, you are, um, you're sitting here uh, talking to me, which is the definition of success, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. No, indeed. You know, I, uh, I always, what you uh, said at the beginning was true. My memory, when you and I were young doctors, a multiple myeloma is as good night I rent. Yeah, know? exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's and, very, uh, very, very different now. Yeah, thankfully. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. Um, I, I, you know, back to the wine issue. Um, uh, I'm sure you know Phil Quirk, the uh, pathologist, um, the colorectal pathologist in Leeds. Um, so Phil got a um, a head and neck tonsillar cancer. And um, he uh, had chemoradiotherapy. And uh, Phil was a, an enthusiastic, a wine enthusiast, you know, probably not at your level, but, um, but nonetheless, he enjoyed his wine. <laughs> and he said, and he's, you know, he's cancer-free for probably 15 years at this stage. But um, I remember him telling me that one of the unforeseen benefits of the chemoradiotherapy is that he now manages to thoroughly enjoy red wine out of a box because he can't taste it anymore. Can't taste the goddamn thing. <laughs> so it saved him a fortune. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, Christine thinks I, I poisoned the cancer with bourbon, so it's all right. <laughs> exactly right. So do you have, um, I, I mean, I can imagine that as you emerge through these uh, really quite an unreasonable number of brushes with mortality yeah. that you've had. Um, um, has, did, it, did it pause you to say, uh, you know, how did it change you? I mean, did it, did it change you? I think it made me very determined to enjoy every day of my yeah. life. It, it truly, really did. And... I mean, I've always been a pretty gentle, easygoing sort of guy. Um, internally, I've been ruthless with myself to succeed and do well and help, you know, a bazillion people. But externally, I'm pretty sort of calm. And um, I just became more that way. You know, I sort of, uh, I don't know, maybe um, I just wanted to enjoy life. I wanted to enjoy enjoy Christine and the kids and my ex, Jen, and my friends. Um, one weird thing is it made me scared because uh, to fly to Australia because, you know, I had the PE. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, I mean, all this stuff is weird, but I woke up one morning and I just couldn't breathe. Yeah. I dead set couldn't breathe. And so I go in and see Bill Cole, the cardiologist, and said, mate, I think I'm having a PE. He looked at me and he goes, you shit in me. I said, no, I really think I am. And because there was another time uh, after I had the MI, a few months later, I walked in and said, mate, I think I'm in atrial fibrillation. <laughs> and he goes, what would you know about atrial fibrillation? <laughs> <laughs> I said, here, feel this. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I just, you just never know what's around the corner. I mean, I know that's a very, everyone says that, but when you've been through this sequence of things where each one of them could potentially finish you off, 
um, I just became determined to really enjoy life. And I have, you know, I have, I really have. You sent me, uh, you know, the little resume thing that I asked people to send me. And uh, the one thing that struck me was um, a word that is repeated um, throughout that, and that is the word love. Um, You know, you love your passions and your Maseratis and your wife and your wine and Montana, et cetera, et cetera. And it struck me that, that one of the things that you've come to, which doesn't come to everyone, and I'm making this up, but it's my interpretation that you've learned that um, uh, spending time on hating things is not worth it. That's 100% how I feel. You know, I certainly use the word love liberally, but i that's probably the biggest thing that's changed. I, I just, every time I'm interacting with anybody about anything, I'm getting pleasure out of it. And I, I just never seek confrontation at all anymore. I used to be, you know, when I was young and all the rest of it, but I, I, I just don't. Um, and I do love my family. I do love my friends. You know, I, you know, I, I love what the life that Chris and I have, and I love the things we do. And they make me happy every day. Like I don't walk around going, oh, whoa, whoa, you know, piddle for me sort of thing. I'm just the opposite of that. It's like lucky me. I'm still here. Yeah. And I can still do these things. So I'm going to make the most of it. Yeah, you know, I'm a huge uh, fan of a guy called Robert Sutton who wrote a book, which I keep a box of in my office. I literally keep a box of these. They're not expensive, I hasten to add, but it's it's a famous book called The No Asshole Rule. And he's the guy that wrote the book, The No Asshole Rule, in which he says, you know, the world is full of assholes. And as he said, we're not talking... You know, each of us has our bad day. As he said, even Mother Teresa, I'm sure, had a bad day every now and then. But he said, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the full-time professional card-carrying asshole. And as he says, you you may work with these individuals on a daily basis. That's your privilege. I choose not to. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the people that when you finish talking to them, you feel lessened and diminished by the experience, as he said, you know, mm-hmm. no, not for me. Very true. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, I, I'm not for one moment saying that I'm wholly successful at it, but as I've got older, um, you know, what I've seen in, I've seen that I need to become less of that person as well, you know, because, uh, yeah. You, you know, you learn at different age, at rates and different events. And uh, yeah. I think it's, uh, as you say, you, you've, you know, I think I'd skip the uh, myeloma, M-I-P-E, and, uh, <laughs> you know, if that's okay, you know, yeah. <laughs> maybe I, maybe I could just, yeah, <laughs> maybe I could just listen to you and, uh, and learn from that rather than having to go through it, you know. <laughs> Trust me, mate, you don't want to go through it. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> the hardest thing, was it was just like thing after thing after thing. And I said, yeah. when's this going to bloody end, you know? And, and so I, I don't want it to end at all. 
Yeah, you I was going to say, that's a it's you know, gonna, I, I want to rephrase that. But I, but I don't <laughs> want, you know, I just, I enjoy every day. Yeah. One of the other things that's given me great relief is I, I love playing music. Yeah. So I, I play, I started playing the piano when I was seven, I think. Uh, did all the classical stuff and then got into Elton and Bruce and Stones and all that sort of stuff. And I still play and I play with a young guy here in New York. Um, he's, he's very gifted playing guitar and singing. And we play in this Irish pub in Midtown. And uh, we also, you know, we have him and a few other friends come up to the house for a weekend. We just play music all day. And it just, you know, some, sometimes I'll play it and cry. Sometimes I'll bash the shit out of it, you know, de depending on what I'm playing, obviously. But also, yeah. you know, if I'm having one of those days, you know, I'll, I'll you know, I'll play Sympathy for the Devil for three hours, you know, on the piano, and I feel better. And um, But that was a great gift from my mum. She was an incredible uh, pianist and uh, convinced me of the worth of, you know, playing. So well, that's I, been good. I ask um, people this question. It's not meant to be morbid, of course, um, but how do you, how would you like to be remembered and how do you think you will be remembered? They're not necessarily I'd the like same thing. to be remembered as a decent guy. I'd like to be remembered as a good dad. I'd like to be remembered as a good husband. And I'd like to be remembered as a good teacher of young surgeons. And uh, if, you, if you had to pick one of them? If you had to pick just the one? Pick one. Mm -hmm. uh, good guy. Yeah, yeah. Just you so know, anything on the bucket list? Uh, no, not really. Um, with Christine and I were just talking about that. You know, as we both got a little bit older, um, we tend to gravitate towards the familiar. Yeah. Rather than to, you know, oh my God, we've got to go and do this and that. Because um, we've done a lot, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. Um, we've been, you know, had good lives, and we're more likely just to go back to Montana for a week, yeah. or, or go to Burgundy for a few days, or you know, go to Piedmont. Okay, well, George, here are a few uh, one of these uh, fifteen-second questions that you're legally obliged to answer. Um, where you have no time to think and there are no correct answers. But as I say to people, I, of course, do know what the correct answer is. Um, so if you're ready um, yep. to go ahead. So um, baseball or football? Football. Uh, Coke or uh, Pepsi? Diet Coke. Mac or PC? Oh, Mac. Mac. Uh, cats or dogs? Dogs. Um, Burger King or McDonald's? McDonald's. Uh, Stones or Beatles? Ooh, that's hard. Stones. Um, French or New Zealand? French. 
Home or away. What was the last one? Home or away. Uh, home. Well, on that note, George, um, I, I want to thank you again for uh, spending an hour to uh, uh, to tell us your story. It's um, it's uh, great to see you again. I haven't seen Likewise. you for years, um, and um, uh, I'm so happy that uh, uh, that you have uh, such joy in your life. Um, thank you. I appreciate and, that. Um, uh, I hope for many more years to come, uh, you can. Uh, Thanks. Uh, terrorize the flying and swimming population <laughs> yeah. in Montana. Particularly the flying ones. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. All right, so, mate. Thanks a lot. And I'm sorry about all the uh, high-tech stuff. Okay. All right. Bye, you. George.